Standard Issue for all women. Hello there. Welcome to episode 17 of the Standard Issue pod scene. I'm Mickey Noonan and I once went to a casino when I very much should have gone to A&E. I'm joined by... I'm Hannah Dunleavy and this week I saw a cat sitting on a donkey's back in actual life, not on the internet. I'm so jealous. It was oh. glorious. Oh, wow. And I'm Jen Offord and I've never watched Mary Poppins. I'm not even sure how that's possible. Anyway, later on, we chat to Katya and Liz from Lighthearts UK about stress and how to deal with it. I talked to Isabel Stead about her film, about a female suicide bomber, The Journey, and I also talked to Carrie Lloyd about her excellent podcast, Griefcast. Our Sarah's back answering your all-important life questions, and I do Disney's The Hunchback of Notre Dame. But first, mental health, goggle box and sugar tits. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we suit up and wander into the upside down that is 2017. Uh. More sexual predators continue to be outed, sorry, alleged, in the aftermath of Weinstein Gate, including actor Kevin Spacey, who bravely came out as a nonce and barrister and political correspondent Rupert Myers. Oh, and in news which has surprised absolutely no one, photographer provocateur slash monumental sleazebag Terry Richardson. Presumably Richardson heard the news he'd finally been rumbled for sexual misconduct while in the woods, next to the Pope having a shit and a bear in a funny hat. The subject of widespread allegations of the sexual abuse of models for at least a decade, it's only now, post-Weinstein, that the very same allegations have resulted in magazines and papers blacklisting the photographer. Richardson became famous for his in-your-face quasi-porn shots and insisting he be referred to as Uncle Terry. Mm. The phrase hiding in plain sight doesn't even cut it. It's a sexual predator equivalent of a bag of nuts with a sticker saying, may contain nuts. And as sexual predators on both sides of the Atlantic continue to be unmasked, you might be forgiven for asking, does this mean women are about to be routinely believed when they accuse powerful men from now on? Oh, blessed, brave new world, we welcome you with open arms and tears of joy. Yes. Well, call your boots there, because the big news from the White House is that while it absolutely 100% believes the women who have accused Harvey Weinstein of being a seedy old fuck, those women accusing Donald J grab them by the pussy remain liars. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, scandal inevitably turned up at the steps of the commons like a wank-filled sock. <laughs> First up, super good Christian and one-time Tory leader hopeful Stephen, I don't like the gays, crab, apologised for sending sexually explicit text messages, and not for the first time, to someone who wasn't his wife. And to be fair, there's no guarantee that she would want them either. (laughs) This time the MP was sexting a woman he'd interviewed and then turned down for a job, something he said basically amounted to unfaithfulness, like that was the first thing anyone gave a fuck about. Mm -hmm. Crabbe was joined in Twat Corner by International Trade Minister Mark Garnier, do you think it's Garnier? Or like Gar- Le Bourgeois yeah. Garnier. Yeah, or Garnier, I don't know. Anyway, it's who admitted asking his secretary to buy sex toys for him and calling her sugar tits because hijinks. All of which must have sounded really funny to Michael Gove, who's probably thinking of a top joke to crack next time he's on the radio. I'm looking forward to seeing Gove on live at the Apollo. <laughs> because abusing women is just so badly entertaining. More news as it grindingly inevitably happens. The mind boggles, doesn't it? 
Anyone. I don't think it was the mind he was trying think, to boggle. Do you think she got turned down for the job because she didn't tick the box, will you buy me a dildo on your lunch break? Aww. She should have uh, ticked the box. I do not wish to receive any further information. <laughs> <laughs> How do you get to turn someone down for a job and then, so I don't want to employ you, but I would like you to look at my penis. <laughs> a report published last week revealed the alarming numbers of people forced to leave their jobs due to long-term mental health problems. The report, commissioned by Prime Minister Theresa May, revealed 300,000 people left their jobs each year at a cost of £99 billion to the economy, which would be a surprise if, you know, mental health problems didn't affect one in three people in the UK. The report recommended that employers should make information and support around mental health more accessible and to routinely monitor employee mental health, among other actions. Which would be cracking if there were any kind of sensible focus by policymakers on one of the biggest public health issues that the country faces, or indeed any services were made available. Teabag called for NHS England and the UK Civil Service to accept the report's recommendations, which in itself shows a fundamental misunderstanding of how government policy works, since, you know, mate, that's sort of your job, isn't it? You know, the job you promised to do last year when you pledged to do more to help people with mental health problems. Even she is bored of her own lines yeah. by now, surely. Surely. I don't even know if she... Does she even know? They're lo- I don't even fucking know. I think they just, like, when she goes to bed, they just wipe her hard drive from that day. <laughs> she wakes up with a fresh plate. It isn't just the Tories making a right old balls up, though. Fittingly for Halloween season, old online comments came back to haunt Labour MP Jared O'Mara, who resigned from the Women and Equality Select Committee after misogynistic and homophobic gags he posted more than a decade ago resurfaced. O'Mara, who took Nick Clegg's Sheffield Hallam seat at the last election, has since been suspended from the Labour Party. But it's almost as if nothing we share on the internet is truly private, and someone going into a public office should know that. Almost. Good news for the Women Equalities Committee? Well, sure. Except professional troller of women and Jeb Master General Philip Davis still sits on it. I know what I'd like him to sit on. A massive spike. He's about as supportive of women as a saggy old bra made from nothing and fuck all. Can I say something about Amara? Please do. It's a really massive fuck up by Labour not to vet him properly. They were just really giddy. that I don't think they thought he was going to get in. But it does suggest that if you don't think if you think that nobody's going to get into that seat, what they're offering you is just any old twat who's prepared to stand, which isn't really how democracy <laughs> should work, is it? Yeah, it's a bit like, you know, um, in Indiana Jones and various Indiana Jones films, when he's up against a guy that could quite clearly beat him in a fist fight, yet he pulls out his gun and wins, and everyone goes, wasn't expecting that. Yeah. Doesn't mean he's the best guy for the job. No. Indiana Jones would have probably done a better job. Possibly. I don't doubt that for a second. Although, I mean... He's a bit of a... He's a bit of a shit to women, isn't he? Yeah. To be Just fair. a bit. Handsome, though, so, you know... Fit, so good. he gets away yeah. with it. Sure. <laughs> My brother once said to me, all I see when I look at Harrison Ford is Han Solo. Han Solo investigating archaeological sites. <laughs> Han Solo fighting the Nazis. <laughs> Han Solo getting it on with the Amish. That's all he says. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... People's Princess Jeremy Corbyn was up to his usual tricks last week as it was announced he would appear in a Gogglebox celebrity special as part of Channel 4's Stand Up to Cancer fundraiser. Not content with charming the metaphorical pants of Glastonbury crowds earlier this year and, you know, 
doing all right in the general election, the Labour leader will reportedly share a sofa with an unidentified celebrity guest to give his thoughts on a selection of TV programmes. By celebrity, we could be looking at anyone from hashtag grind for Corbyn comrade Stormzy to Mark Ruffalo. At any rate, and much to his disappointment we're sure, we assume it doesn't mean Tom Watson. I like the idea that it is an unidentified celebrity guest and you just never get to know who it is. They just have to sit there with like a bag over their head. So I was on holiday this week in the land of my father's and there was a really interesting story there with the impeachment of Katie Asko, who is the president or was the president of University College Dublin Student Union. Asko, who was elected in March, ordered the reprinting of the Freshers' Guide to remove information about seeking an abortion overseas, something that cost the union about €8,000, which I currently think is about a quarter of a million pounds. (laughs) Uh, Pro-life campaigner Asko claimed legal advice suggested both she and the union could be fined for breaking the law in this way. And on this point, she is totally correct, although history has shown that no action has ever been taken. The former president was impeached by a vote of 69% to 31%, and it's hard not to see this as a mini-referendum on the issue of abortion itself, which, looking at figures like that seems positive right yeah Yeah. except that that's 31 percent of young people Mm -hmm. voting for a pro-life candidate which is quite incredible and i say that someone who knows ireland pretty well and knows catholicism upsettingly well (laughs) it's it's easy to look at so many political issues which in this case sadly abortion is and fall into the trap of thinking it's a case of old versus young And it's clearly not. You know, my 71-year-old mother is a Remainer and this 20-something thinks that somebody else can decide if she dies in labour. It is really distressing, I think, that this isn't something that's been sorted yet. Like, repeal the 8th, repeal the 8th. How many times does it have to be said, repeal the 8th? Well, I'm worried that the referendum's not going to pass. Well, I am worried, having been there and seen this, because there's something else that worries me about it and that's the way that it was reported. For example, the Irish Times mm. included a story about why Asco was pro-life. And that was quite graphic about her mother having a miscarriage and her holding the fetus in her hands at 14 weeks. Now, there's absolutely no reason for that to be in that story. No reason whatsoever for something so graphic and, much as I hate this, possibly triggering for people who've had miscarriages, to be used in a story which was basically fundamentally saying, to my mind, what that saying is, the Irish Times So they're nailing their colours to the mass there, aren't they? They I really mean, it's are. incredibly emotive politics. But also, I think the, the point you made about the young people as well. So I did, when I did my um, bike trip across America a couple of years ago, I met a woman who is like she's the head of the Houston chapter of the National Organisation of Women and uh, which is like a campaign organisation in the US and she was also coincidentally the first woman to work um, in a non-administrative role at Mission Control for NASA pretty interesting yeah Uh, Poppy so I wanted to meet her and she was like we do this thing on a Saturday where we go and we stand outside the local abortion clinic basically and we get women through the protesters do you want to come along and I was like Sure, I'll go and like, you know, check this out. So I went along to interview her there and all of the protesters were young, all of them. They were all like in their 20s or early 30s. And a lot of them were women. I was completely baffled by it. 
it seemed so odd to me. It's well, I mean, sorry, sorry. I was going to say, but I mean, the thing is, how does a pro-lifer, open pro-life campaigner, end up elected the head of a student body in the first place? Well, yeah. If that's if well, yeah. if those are sort of known, I, I think it's an indoctrination thing. I went to Catholic school. And I remember having the tiny feet badge, which was a pro-life little badge, and it was two little gold feet, and it was a pro-life badge, and that's because at my school they taught us that abortion was wrong. And, like, that was up until 16, and uh, I'm of an age where the internet wasn't around then, and, I mean, I'm sure it was around in very basic form, but I certainly didn't have access to it. And we were just shown videos of aborted fetus, and just it was pretty hardcore, as you know, as as schooling went, and it was very much one-sided. It it is nuts as well. The sort of things that I actually shouted at an old lady on Whitehall once because she was standing outside the Department of Health, and she had like these big signs up of you know supposedly aborted fetuses. But I can tell you, outside this abortion clinic in Houston, the fetuses they had like fucking biceps. Do you know what I mean? Like they've been fully doctored. They were, but she these like really really graphic images, and she's apparently that's okay to just like stand around with this, you know, in front of kids, in front of anyone who might have had an abortion, experienced a miscarriage, whatever. I just thought, how the fuck is it okay for you to be doing that? Because it is so emotive. It's yeah. so emotive. Whereas I was nearly, I was threatened with arrest for my. Um, placard that says fuck this shit the police tried to confiscate it and told me that they could arrest me which to because kids might really see it. yeah that is in preposterous mm. but the the thing that i find again i find interesting because obviously we're talking about ireland which is so close and yet so far is that ireland has a really really unhappy history of what happens to its women who have babies out of wedlock yeah. in the magdalene laundries in mother and baby homes where terrible, terrible abuses took place mm. of women, of children, and sometimes of both because because sometimes the women were, were, were children. children yeah. And kids taken away, them told kids had died, and of abuses that went on within the church. You would think that there would be a relative amount of healthy cynicism amongst young people about what they were being told. It's Didn't like they... lessons haven't been learned from history. Yeah, there. almost. What's the film with Steve Coogan in? Philomena. Yeah. Philomena, yeah. yeah. Which is based on a true story yeah. and yeah that oh, I shouted she, on a plane about that yeah they told her <laughs> angry Jen <laughs> was really angry yeah they told people that people were dead and it's staggering so yeah, yeah I it, it does make me think that if anyone listening has any idea what we can do to help repeal the 8th then just tweet me at that Dunleavy also Absolutely. or tweet us at Standard Issue UK yeah While we're on the subject of universities, the Daily Telegraph published a clarification last week after reporting that Cambridge University had been forced to drop white authors from its courses in response to a call by students to decolonise its English faculty. The Telegraph was, as you might expect, outraged by an open letter from students which it said proposed white men be dropped from the syllabus in favour of black authors. Fucking hell. Yeah, if you can imagine. I can't, Jen. I don't want to. I, I, do want I to. actually can't because no, it yeah. doesn't exist. So, happen. you know. Yeah. But anyway, uh, 
personally, I don't think I hear enough from white men in the arts or politics or every fucking aspect of daily life. I can give you a few like websites you could visit, Jen, if you're really interested in the opinions of white men. Yeah, that would be great yeah, if you we'll, don't mind. We'll do that after yeah. record. Cheers, yeah, sure. thank you. No worries. Anyway, the day after naming and indeed picturing, like not just a little picture, a fucking like a huge picture of the student that it said was responsible for the letter on its front page, no less. The newspaper acknowledged that the proposals were in fact recommendations. Neither they nor the open letter called for the university to replace white authors with black ones and there are no plans to do so. And because fair is fair, the Telegraph printed its, you know what, you know that thing we said that Lola Olufemi said that turned out to be total bullshit? Yeah, yeah, that one with her photo and everything, uh, soz about that, on the front page, right? Of course it didn't. Huge front page mistake. Itty bitty back page discorrection. Another paper getting its pants in a dance is, you guessed it, the Daily Mail. What? I know, right? Yes, I was surprised. Were you surprised? I was surprised. Following Tory whip Chris Heaton Harris's question as to what universities were teaching students about Britain leaving the EU being met with ridicule, the paper put down its spaff covered photo of a banana flaunting its curves to start frothing at the mouth at what it tagged for remaining universities. Apparently, students are worried they'll be marked down if they support Brexit in their essays. And that, well, it's just not cricket, is it? The mail has gone so far as to set up an email address so people can write in with tales of anti-Brexit bias. Twitter, of course, rubbed its hands in glee and shared screenshots of what was landing in the mail's inbox. I once drank a cappuccino in front of some students, admitted one tutor, while another emailer simply wrote, souls." simple, to the point. If any university, i.e. the institutions filled by careful selection with the brightest minds and that have been encouraging critical thinking for centuries, can come up with a syllabus for teaching students about leaving the EU, maybe they could share it with the government. Brexit negotiations don't seem to be going all that well, really. Are they not? Mm, I don't know, not, not brilliantly. Bloody and hell. finally, breaking news, breaking. literally, as we walked into the studio, and it may well have been superseded by other news that you know, but after two and a half years of covering the it's Trump campaign, news. I was uh, with absolute glee that I can report that Paul Manafort has been indicted for conspiracy against the United States. <laughs> Jen posed a really interesting question when we were quickly chatting about this before we came in to record, which is... Can you be executed for treason in the United States of America? Well, you can be executed for a lot of stuff in in, uh, America. Sometimes you're even guilty. Might depend on the state, I suppose. Well, it's a federal crime, and I see it as unlikely. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that part of the week where we tee up par for the course sexism and whack it with a five iron into the for fuck's sake bunker. Yeah, because we understand golf. I had to look up all of those terms. I'm actually really good at golf. Are you? I know, it's amazing. I I love a driving range. It's preposterous that someone who is so shit at all sport should be be good at a shit sport. I am good at golf. Also, you're a girl? Well, on that note... This week, unsuspecting teenager Emily Nash hit the headlines after she won a boys' golf tournament, but she was told she couldn't take the trophy home. Now, 16-year-old Nash wasn't even referred to by her name in the Massachusetts Interscholastic Athletic Association's statement on the issue. 
she was allowed to participate in the boys tournament on her school's team as other girls are where no female events being sponsored however the rules state that though they can be part of the team they cannot submit an individual score in order to compete for an individual prize as Nash herself graciously accepted rules are rules but frankly MIAA your rules suck yeah they do although I have got to say that as a woman I find that my, my really long nails get in the way of holding a trophy so it might have been for the best it's tricky she needs to learn yeah and the hand cream it does make my it's hands slippery, quite slippery very slippery but um, I was incandescent with rage about this uh, to the extent that I actually shouted at a colleague <laughs> in an office where I was working last week because he said well it's not really about gender is it what the actual fuck? Whoever's the best should have won, shouldn't they? Regardless of gender. That is very much the point, and it is very much about gender. You fuck with. Sorry if you're listening to this, because I will have to work with you again. But here is the problem with your rules, right? Here is the problem. They are sexist, and they purport the myth that women exist in a supporting role rather than competitors in their own right. If girls aren't allowed to play in a boys' tournament and vice versa... Don't fucking let them play. Don't use them to support a team so that they can play. But don't say you can play, but you're not allowed to win. The idea that I mean, a young there's woman... there's a motto for women for life, Well, exactly. At least they're fucking, you know, at least she knows what to expect for the rest <laughs> of her life. You can join in, but you won't be getting any yeah. prizes. Well, hang on. Is it, is it not the taking part that counts? Is that not what we're told? The oh, taking part the, and the having Taking babies, part that counts yeah. if you're... A little girl. Yeah, quite. It's not apparently if you're a guy. It's the same with sex, though. It's just the bead there, right? Yeah, yeah you don't yeah, have absolutely. to. You just have to lie back and think of golf tournaments. <laughs> oh, it's, God. Oh, this made me so angry. Like the idea that a teenage girl is being told this, that this is still what teenage girls are being told, makes me so fucking livid. I've got nothing to add no. other than or everything you just said is correct. Jen has now got her hand on her head, like she's trying to hold in the rage. Don't hold it in, Jen. No, I've got more. I've got more later. That's fine. More rage later. More rage as it very much happens. (laughs) Their statement, they just said, look, the rules are you can be in it, which is like an opportunity for you to play if there's no sponsored event for girls. Which is fair enough, right? And they're like, everyone's really accepting of this and thought it was a really good idea. And yay, boys, for letting them play, you know. It's weird as well, isn't it, to win when you haven't won? Yeah. It's a very odd, that in itself is an odd message yeah. to say to the person who came second, well, hey, take the trophy. Yeah. Way. Even though she, and she, I don't know what the score was and also oh, I'm not going to lie to you. She won by four strokes. Yeah, she, it was like. She wouldn't, she beat her yeah, ass. Yeah, she was much better. To the point that actually like a, a Fox News <laughs> pundit was like tweeting, this is an outrage. If Fox News are telling you you're in the, do you know what I mean? Like Fox you're, News are calling you sexist. Yeah, you're, you're on the trouble. wrong fucking side here, aren't you? You're like clearly on the wrong side if Fox News reckon. Indeed, because when all like uh, CNN and other US news channels talking about Paul Manafort, uh, Fox News was uh, talking about the hamburger emoji. Well, they were talking about locking uh, locking Hillary Clinton up yesterday. Yeah. Just yesterday. Well, <laughs> those emails, though. Um, but I've got to say, at least from this golf tournament and from what Emily Nash has had to mm-hmm. go through, we do know where the very famous saying, you've got to be in it to not win it, comes yeah. from. 
Podcast Exchange. Podcast Exchange. Podcast Exchange. I'm here with Karen Lloyd, who is an actor, a comedian, and indeed an improviser. But on top of those many things, she is also a podcaster herself, and she has a fantastic podcast called the Griefcast. Griefcast, yeah. Which she's going to tell us a bit about now on our. Sure. Podcast exchange. Um, so. We might have a sting for that by the time this happens. Oh, nice. How about this? Podcast exchange. Perfect. <laughs> what, what could be better? What could be better? <laughs> uh, Mick, so, you I, can have that one yeah. for free, mate. So. so I do a podcast called Griefcast. Called Griefcast. Uh, where I interview comedians about grief and death. And it's cheerier than it sounds. Because everyone hears it and goes, wow, fuck. <laughs> like, what? But, um, yeah, I talk to comedians who've experienced grief themselves, and we just talk about their story and what happened to them and how they felt and how they dealt with it. But because it's comedians, it's sort of light, which is quite nice. It doesn't, you know, we obviously do go there, but we also laugh about the weirdness Mm. that happens when you're grieving and the stupid, awkward things that happen when someone dies and the terrible things that people say to you and that make you want to bash your head against the wall. Do you ever talk about the... um... The way the people or... crane their neck, yeah, like, in sympathy, or... which is weird, isn't and it? And also they do it, they go, how are you? And they do it on the art, how are you? How is everything? It's okay. It's fucking shit, <laughs> Yeah, shit. It's shit, what do you want me to say? It's shit. It's oh, oh, like, bear yeah. up. Yeah, yeah. Chin Get up, on. chin up. So yeah, we just talk about that. So I've had, like, Adam Buxton, David Baddiel, Sarah Pascoe, um, yeah, so like Kayla Llewellyn, Beth Rylance. Yeah, just a variety. So some... Um, more well-known comedians, other sort of writer, people behind the scene comedians, and just all talking about how they have grieved for someone. So what made you want to do this? It's like, you know, it's a bit of a... It does... It. I've, I've listened to it, obviously. Yeah. It's very good. It's very moving, and it's touching, and it's... But it's also, like, not this big, harrowing, awful yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, so, but, but it does sound like a bit of a sort of... It sounds worse than it is. I think you have to listen to subject. it. Why did you want to cover that? So my dad died when I was 15 and I feel like I've spent a lot of time in the past 20 years of talking to people about death and because I went through it very early. Mm. So I always say like I was a bit of the go-to grief girl. So yes. if something happened, yeah. I would be the person that they'd call or I'd yeah. have people ring me and go, oh, my friend, you know, so-and-so just died. What should yeah. I say? So I became this like port of call, which I didn't mind. You were, Carrie Ab was in fact one of the first people I called after my brother died. Yeah, I know, I remember that. I yeah. really vividly remember that. And I feel like, I guess because I dealt with it so young, I was sort of, a, I felt like I was able to go, okay, this is how you're going to feel, this is going to be really shit, mm. the first two weeks are going to be fucking awful, the first year is going to be terrible, but then somehow, somehow it will get easier. Yeah. So I would have these conversations with people, and often comedians, obviously, because that's my world, mm. and I just sort of thought, oh, wouldn't it be nice to record them because they're quite interesting yeah. just hear people's stories yeah and I didn't really know what I was doing I just recorded four before I had my baby last year and I thought I'd just put them out mm. see what happens and then I put them out and I got so many emails from people saying I didn't know other people felt like this mm. I've never spoken about it I thought I was mental I haven't ever told my family how I feel uh, listening to your podcast has made me realize I'm not alone mm. And I was so overwhelmed, I thought, oh my god, this isn't just me chatting, this mm. is genuinely, people. some people aren't talking about this. Yeah. And to have a place, to have a place where you can laugh, and it's, you yeah. know, you're amongst people who get it, yeah. who are not going to judge you, or not think, oh, you don't care, because you're laughing, going to be like, sometimes you laugh. So there is that kind of, sort of, 
Is it gallows humour? Is yeah, that the expression yeah. I'm looking yeah, for? Yeah, definitely there's of... a lot of gallows humour. Yeah. Because what else can you do but laugh when things just, you know, unbelievably yeah. awful? Like, sometimes, you know, obviously you cry and you feel shit, but and also stuff, ha- like, funny stuff happens. Yeah. Funerals and hospices, stuff happens which you're like, can't, you can't help but go, that's... <laughs> so I was talking to Jack Rook the other day and he was telling me, <clears throat> he does a show about grief as well. Mm. Uh, called Good Grief and his someone came up to him and said her dad had just died and the cleaning was outside singing oh happy day <laughs> <laughs> and the mum had to go out and was like shut the fuck up actually mate yeah but like stuff so like that where you just think oh come on yeah is this a sitcom like what yeah so yeah there's lots of talking about the funny stuff that happens so finding a bit of light in the darkness yeah find a bit of light find a bit of shared experience of going oh, I had that too, so we can both laugh about it. And that's yeah. not taking away our pain or saying yeah. that person didn't matter. That's us sharing a moment we go, that was so shit, we might as well laugh about it because otherwise yeah. we'd just be sitting here bawling our eyes out. The initial concept and what you thought it would be, has it changed since then? No, not too much. I think I've refined it. I always just wanted it to be a really personal interview with one person. I'm now feeling much more like I want to cover lots of different grief. So I spoke to Lou Conran recently, who writes for Stand- did write for Standard Issue about the loss of her child at five months. I've spoken to people who've lost people through dementia and, you know, and lost people younger and older. Mm. So I now feel like a bit of responsibility that mm. I want. And I get people emailing me going, please, can you talk about this? Because yeah. this is what's happening to me. Mm. So that's all that's changed. Is I now I think I take it a bit more seriously. Whereas before I was like... Oh, I imagine two people are going to listen, so <laughs> I don't have to worry. Yeah. And then, you know, I had a lot more than that. So yeah, I was and like, then it's like, okay. all right, fuck, better. Yeah, better make sure this is good. And do you feel like you've learned a lot about yourself in that process as well? Or or that's Carrie Ann's baby, that's having, my baby a little, um, <laughs> having a little shout for herself because I've been monopolising her mother for like 50 hours. Um, do you feel like you've learned about yourself at all or, or like in general? Yeah, definitely. I think talking about what happened to me, talking about my dad and his death and what happened around that, there's been loads of times where people have said stuff that I thought, oh wow, I didn't know I did feel like that or mm. I didn't know that is how I was feeling or, oh yeah, yeah, that is right. So I, in me, <laughs> she's really shouting, in me speaking about it, I think I've come to terms with it a lot more. Mm. I think I obviously needed to talk about it. And this yeah. was a good excuse to talk about it. Um, That's amazing that you <clears> felt <throat> like that. Does it feel like it's been like a cathartic process for you as well then? Yeah, definitely. And sometimes it's hard. Mm. Sometimes it's hard when people are saying stuff and you think, oh God, I don't want to talk about it again today. Yeah. But at the same time, it's, yeah, it's that shared experience and knowing that you're not alone, knowing that other people felt exactly the same way as you. And, and also just understanding, I think also just understanding you're not special which in a way is I don't mean that horribly but like everybody experiences it yeah different ways yeah different variations of the same thing but everybody experiences pain and loss and mm. death and even if you have you know you're not married or you're an only child you would yeah. everybody experiences it in some way so to feel like sort of shared humanity of like mm. oh, we'll all go through this yeah, it's kind of weird isn't it because you are yeah like it's you know the the direction of travel yeah which yeah is a bit of a but we all pretend it's not happening thought, but yeah but it's like is it somber or is it like the truth it's just what's gonna happen fucking hell man the truth <laughs> somber. is that the toughest thing about it then talking about 
your dad and sort of the best thing and the worst thing in a way yeah definitely the bet i really love talking about him and i love remembering stuff and mm. i find it helpful talking to people about you know how people do i i because so, you can compare and go oh yeah he didn't do that or he did that. that's interesting yeah but it's hard there's yeah. definitely times and i record like so i might do three in a week yeah and then I put them out later. So for three days, I'm talking about my dad dying. And that gets a bit much because sometimes you're like, if I wasn't doing this podcast, yeah. I would spend those three days not, you know, it's been 20 years. So I don't yeah. think about it every day. Yeah, I, do, I don't. You do go days where it doesn't come up. I mean, obviously, Father's Day can fuck off right now. But <laughs> yeah, but, um, yeah. so that's hard. But then that's obviously the choice I've made in doing it. Yeah. <laughs> but it's okay. It's just... It's just made me more. It's just made me more aware of it mm. than I was before. It's a weird thing, isn't it? Because I remember before I had my own experience of grief, people said I think about them every day, and I honestly used to think maybe this makes me like a sociopath or something. But I honestly used to think like, do you really though? <laughs> do you though? And then you you yeah, fucking you do, do, don't you? you? Do. Until you get to a point like a bit down the line, yeah. and actually. You don't think about them every day. Not every day, but I would say at least once a week. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, because things, how can it not, and it's not yeah. like, it's often not your fault. Like, it's Father's Day, your friend yeah. says something about, you know, their dad or their brother, and you instantly go, oh, yeah, oh, I don't have a dad. <laughs> you know, it's just that, like, like, oh, my, oh, or someone says, oh, what does your dad do? What are your parents? Yeah. Like, it just comes up. So yeah. you're, you're constantly faced with it through the world. Mm. And, yeah, I mean, I'm, so I'm 19 years down now. <laughs> 19 years and strong and so I definitely think it that's the other thing I think is important for me to talk about it is I'm talking to people who are three or four two yeah. three four years down the line and for that they often say to me at the end of the podcast does it really get easier and I'm like it does it does it doesn't take the pain away but it it does somehow I think you get better at managing it that's mm. it I think you just get better at knowing oh oh it's one of those days okay, I can't do this, I can't, yeah. I can't drink today, I can't spend all day on the phone, I need to get outside, I need to mm. talk to someone. You just get better at knowing it, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You've started doing this comparatively recently. Mm, yeah. You started doing it while you were pregnant. <laughs> yes, yeah. So you have just spawned life. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and you were in the process of being about to spawn life yeah. when you started doing it. Do you think that was like significant in any way? I definitely do. Yeah, I definitely do. I think that getting pregnant somehow, I don't know why, and then you'd have to, I'm sure a therapist can tell you, somehow enabled me to talk about it. Because I didn't talk about it. Like, I talked about it with you and close friends. Yeah. But I, I, none of my comedy was ever mentioned about it. I did character stuff. It did not come yeah. up. In interviews, I never mentioned it. I didn't want yeah. anyone to know. I was very private about it. And something about being pregnant just, for some reason, opened the floodgates. And I felt compelled. I was like, I have to talk about this. Mm. And I, I guess I felt comfortable. I felt older. I felt happier people knowing like being carried out and mm. talking about it because for so long I was you know such a character act hiding mm. behind things I definitely think something happened and someone the really weird thing someone tweeted me and they said at the grief cast guys and they said um, they heard I had a baby and I said I just want to warn you it's going to feel like grieving and at the time I was like what a weird thing to say and then it's the most truest thing it's the most similar experience to death that I've ever had what are you what, what do you feel you're grieving so like the person you were or no and it's not the grieving it's you're very isolated because yeah. you're going through this thing that your friends don't understand yeah. so even if I can imagine that actually because I've been yeah. one of the really for me the grief thing is like 
literally no one knows your pain. Yeah. Like, my brother obviously also lost a brother. Yeah. He didn't know my pain, I didn't know his yeah, pain, because yeah. your, your experience is so, so deeply, personal. deeply personal. And I can imagine, yeah. even though I'm not a parent myself, I can imagine it being like a very similar kind it's of really thing. It's really similar. You look around and you're like, no one gets it, no one gets it. Yeah. You also don't want to go out like you do when you're like, you, like, and you feel like when you go out, everything seems really loud and scary mm. and noisy. And the way that I think you do with grief, when you're like, oh, the world seems so fucking mental, I can't deal with it. Mm. When you're just a baby, you're like, ah, I can't deal. And instead of, I would say, instead of a, like, obviously, instead of a loss of a person, there's this person. Yeah. So suddenly you've got to make room for a person in a way that suddenly there's a hole when they're gone. So it's different in some ways, but it reminded me, I felt very similar to how I did when I was grieving. And I was so glad that per- that this woman tweeted me because I was like, oh, that would have really triggered a lot of stuff with me. Yeah. But actually I was able to go, oh, yeah, you know what? It's just it's just reminding me yeah. of feeling isolated, feeling alone, yeah. feeling depressed, feeling overwhelmed, feeling like you've got so much mm. emotion you don't know what to do with it. Yeah. This is how you feel when you're grieving. Because you're like, oh my God, it's just, I'm full and I don't know where to put any of these feelings. And I definitely, yeah, that's how you feel after having a baby. But obviously it's much happier. <laughs> that's good. That's the one good thing. Definitely Don't nicer. worry, guys, it's better than death. Yeah. Um, <laughs> good to know. It's like the circle of life. The oh. circle of life. Absolutely. The circle of life. I fucking love that song. <laughs> I suppose also, like, the feelings of becoming a parent yeah, maybe made yeah. you feel a bit more about your own parents and what yeah, they went yeah. through. Yeah, and... you start thinking, oh, God, you know how, like, they didn't know what they were doing. I didn't think they knew what they were doing. They didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> and I don't know what I'm doing. No one knows what they're doing. That's yeah. okay. But no one knows what they're doing in life. No, they really don't. But it's a real, a baby will really bring that up to sort of focus. Yeah. <laughs> like, I really don't know what I'm doing. So yeah, I think definitely. And then you you obviously, you know, I'm looking at my husband now becoming a father. And that reminds you of, you know, my dad. And I've had a daughter. So it's like, oh, you know, or there's a lot of, yeah, a lot of triggers. Yeah. Um, but it's not, it doesn't have to be a bad thing. It's mm. just what it is. You know, it's just what's happening. Thank you very much, Karen Lloyd. Uh, you can listen to the Griefcast, which I again fully recommend. Thank it's you, very, it's very brilliant. Uh, where can, can they find it? You can find it on Acast or Acast, how you supposed to say it? Um, Acast.com forward slash Griefcast. You can follow us on Twitter at the Griefcast, and you can follow on Instagram the Griefcast as well, where I do some cheery grief memes. Oh, I didn't even know that. Oh yeah, out, cheery grief memes Check because I was fed up of seeing pictures of beaches and cornfields going even though you miss him he's with you every day so now I've got a dog going the face you pull when people ask you are they divorced no and you go nope he's dead <laughs> oh, what's that face mm-hmm. uh kind of sort of like leaning back and I, I, I can't do look, look it up yeah on Instagram, yeah look it up look it up thank you very thank much thank you very much podcast exchange podcast exchange podcast exchange I'm Jen and I'm here with Isabel Stead, who is the co-writer and producer of a film called The Journey which is showing at the London Film Festival. We're in the picture house so you can hear some sort of bar type noises in the background, general clattering. Hi Isabel. Hey, thanks for interviewing me. As I said before, nobody ever wants to interview the producer. <laughs> we are chatting to you about your film, The Journey, which is about Sarah, who is about to detonate a bomb at its Baghdad train station, just as it's been reopened after several years of conflict. And the film takes you on a journey, I suppose. Sarah meets a number of the people who she's about to kill, and we learn a bit about them. 
I saw it the other day and yeah, it's really, really fascinating and powerful and extremely tense, <laughs> as you might imagine, given the subject matter. What made you want to write and produce this film? Mohamed Aldaraji. <laughs> He's the director and co-writer of the film. He was working on his last project, Son of Babylon in Baghdad, when he saw a news article of a girl that had been stripped and hung outside a police station with a bomb strapped to her. She'd gone into the station and confessed that she had this bomb and she didn't want to go through with it, so they publicly humiliated her until they could remove the bomb. And this image kind of stayed with him, so when he came back to the UK, we, we penned out an idea around it. And I, as I started to understand a little bit more about the situation, girls not just, not just from the Middle East joining these causes and joining Al-Qaeda or ISIS, I started finding stories in, in Europe, Belgium, and, and recently in the UK. And as we started developing it, we found it really difficult to go a bit deeper because how do you... How do you put yourself in the shoes of somebody that could commit such an atrocity? But as we were developing it, we had to always put ourselves in that dark situation of what 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 would what would it take you to, to do that? What would have to happen to you to be able to go through with it? And and so we decided then as well we we can only go so far with this because nobody nobody's got the full answers. If if they if they did, we wouldn't be where we are now. I think it's quite interesting. As I said, I saw it the other day, and she's not a sympathetic character initially. But then as you learn a bit more about her, and and she learns more about the people that she's interacting with do you come to feel more sympathy towards her I think as you see a more sort of human side and she's very critical of the West did you worry that there would be given everything that's going on at the moment there would be little appetite among audiences perhaps to explore that more human side of we've been working on this for five years so when when we first started it wasn't happening on the streets of london and manchester it was happening in a far off place and we wanted the western audiences to understand what it was like for iraqis that were living with this on a daily basis that it was a threat to them it was a threat to the director but as soon as we'd finished the film more or less the weeks that we were started submitting it the Ariana Grande concert um, attack happened and we thought god it's the film's going to come across as being in really bad taste and how's people going to react to this but at the end of the day if we don't start creating a dialogue about these people and, and we can't just go straight to the crazy the mad the the evil you have to start on understanding what takes a human being to do this and and not dismissing the the human side of them. Not not we're not in any shape or form trying to justify what this girl has done. There's no, there's absolutely no justification for her to do what she wants to do. But we have to engage with her and, and dialogue with her and understand why she could do that. I think as history has shown us, and we history keeps repeating itself that until you start understanding. A human being and how they were. We're never going to be able to tackle the issue if we just dismiss these people. This girl didn't start off as evil or inhumane. She started off as a girl, somebody's daughter. She was an, an average everyday girl up until what she's about to do. As a storyteller, and I come from a creative producing background, I always want to know what makes a person tick, sure. and in engaging with that was what really interested me in this in this story. I think it is interesting, but I remember a couple of years ago, 
uh, Suffragette was the the opening film at the London Film Festival. As I was watching it, I felt very angry about some of the things that these women had to go through. And um, we take for granted today. You know the bit at the end where it says the countries where women, the dates at which women could vote, and then Switzerland was something like 1970 something. <laughs> and everyone's like, Switzerland? Yeah. What? But any- it's not broken, why fix it? <laughs> Quite. Um, but it's uh, it was interesting to me because I think it made me think a lot more about how people become radicalised about, about the things that they endure day in, day out that make them, that take them to the places such as the place that, that the main character, Sarah, finds herself in. We were an occupation. The first victims of this are women and children and you strip a woman of her rights, you strip her of her freedom of movement. The minute the occupation started, women's freedom of movement in Iraq changed. This was a modern society, girls going to university. It wasn't an extra... Yes, they'd been living under a dictator, but still they had much more freedom, whereas when the occupation happened, mm. the ongoing, not a civil war, it's the chaos. Girls can't go to university anymore, they're stuck at home, they're, but their brothers can still go. Mm. Nothing changes for them. They're walking out on the street on their own and suddenly they're called all the names under the sun where your life changes of, sure. overnight. The same thing happened in Afghanistan. Having to imagine going through that, I went to Iran a few years ago and you, you, you have to wear hijab there. It's, it's the minute you, your, fl- your plane lands, you've got to cover up. And at first I thought, oh, this is, this is you know, don't have to worry about my hair today, it's quite cool. <laughs> no bad hair days. Dropping a pen on the floor and being, being advised by my colleague, don't just bend over, you know, lean down for it. Or, or your clothes are a little bit too, ta- be, being a, constantly aware of how you, you act and have, how you have to think about how you present yourself. And the minute you ha- you're forced to wear something and it's not a choice, that choice is taken away from you. I think you see things differently. Just for a brief time, for that week, I felt very different. I didn't feel like myself. I can only imagine that's tenfold when you're living in a country where you can't you can't go out anymore. You can't go to university. You can't just go apply for a job like you would anywhere else in the world. Everything everything changes. You, you don't have access to the same resources you did. Everything changes. Your whole world changes. So I don't necessarily agree with this quote, but I heard somebody referenced it to the the film that JFK had said that when man has no voice or freedom, he'll look for an extreme way to communicate because it's the only outlet. And I think that that's that's what we're seeing at the moment. I think it's another interesting point, I guess, is that, you know, as much as there are things happening here and this year has been a particularly bad year in the UK and and in other places in terms of, you know, terror attacks and things like that, this kind of thing is happening all the time in in other countries. Suicide bombings are are much more prevalent in other places and I think that's something that probably doesn't occur to people here as much. Is that something that you wanted to try and get across as well? It would have been tough to bring the film to London if we'd have made it local here, like in Yorkshire or or London. I think because it's still showing it at a distance, people are able to distance themselves somewhat to be able to look at it somewhat objectively, but also now with the knowledge that it is... it's not just happening over there. It, it, we've got a closer connection to what's going on and feeling the connection between 
the, the people, the film, it's a bit closer now than it, it would have been a year ago or two years ago. Because all of the other characters that, that Sarah meets, they're all really victims of the war themselves, aren't they? We hear about their stories and the things that they've been through. We wanted to show them, though, not overly sympathetic, to show them still as human beings with their own flaws and things. Yeah. These are st- they're, not, they're not perfect individuals. They're, yeah. they're just people living an everyday life. They have to go to school, they have to work, they have to, they have to survive in, in whatever the world's throwing at them. Obviously, there are female suicide bombers do exist, but I think there's a sort of tendency to think more about men as perpetrators of, of that kind of violence. Why did you decide to make the central character a woman? Probably for that very reason, yeah. that you don't expect somebody that brings life into the world to take it. Mm. You don't expect your mother or your sister to be capable of that. Mm. It's always, if you hear of a, a woman killing in the news, it's always a shock. To, it's, mm. it's a shock how these women, especially for the, the Taliban or for Al-Qaeda or ISIS, these women are the, the, the unseen threat. Mm. They, can, they can pass through checkpoints without, if, if there's no woman on the checkpoints to check them, they can, they can slip through. Mm. The same way that they, they started using children, but birds of paradise, they call them, the next project I'm plugging. Ah. <laughs> The, the woman's not seen as a threat, and yet sure. if you push somebody into a corner enough, they'll fight back. Yeah, I mean, it is, it's more shocking, isn't it? Or I felt when I was watching the film, there are a lot of moments where really she could have been caught. You know, there's a, there's a confrontation with three US soldiers, and you're like, oh, come on. <laughs> like, you know, you've got a dog, for God's sake. Can't they sniff it out? But she is obviously just, she just goes under the radar because she's a woman. Because they, they underestimate women and yeah. I think historically have been un- underestimated and this is being used as well by the very groups that marginalise these women to their advantage. There's a bit where, they, where the little girl thinks that she's pregnant and that the bomb around her midriff is a baby but then there's also this interaction with another character in it, a woman... Who, uh, who has a baby who she ends up with. There's a guy, uh, Salam, who the other kind of central character, I suppose, who's he's a bit of a dodgy character, but then he's the one who ekes out her humanity, I suppose. I think, he, yeah, he's... There is, I think, for the most part, probably a stronger reflection of women characters in, in the film, and that's... We wanted to show different aspects of this girl from a young child. That's not that you can see the a big chunk of her innocence has been has been taken away. Yet there's still childlike. She's still a child. Yeah. She's still you know she still just wants the simple things like chocolate things yeah. you know. Or the woman that still can't get out the man that she, to commit. Do you know what I mean? That it, that's not just happening in in the West. It's happening all over the world yeah. over. You know, or the situation with with the woman with the baby. It's something that's come up again with the, the being different rules for women than there are for men, and that was that's something that Mohammed. I think he he also struggles with from being from a very traditional family. It's something that he I think is constantly questioning and wants to explore more than, than maybe what he can in his own life and for me as well it's my frustration at uh, how I see 
women women in certain groups treated at different times and when when circumstances come and we're put in our place or you know the the woman having to run away just because she's had sex out of marriage you know what i mean it's and and a child's born from it what real shame is it? Surely there's more shame attached to killing her and the child than there is for us as, as Western women. That's a no. Take it, it for granted. Yeah, yeah. but there it's still it's still an issue. If your husband, for example, if your husband dies and you're from a traditional family and you want to remarry, your kids go to live with your your former husband's family. If that's it, that's your choice. That that, that usually happens. Yeah. If a man loses his wife and he remarries the kids stay with him it's 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 just double standards and it's with me and Mohammed we're not trying to judge the society we're just trying to to show it and and create again create a dialogue about that I thought it was interesting that she's doing this thing that is shocking it's more shocking because she's a woman because as you say a woman creates life she's the one who's potentially going to take it away I thought it was quite interesting in terms of the story that it was a man and a baby there were a lot of devices I guess to bring her round was that was that intentional it's a good question. That the baby was definitely divisive. How can we? How can we make her likable? How can we? Yeah. How can we bring around? Well, we, the purest form, a newborn child, the guy. How it was written was probably even more obvious than than it than it necessarily comes across in the in the footage. But yeah. we made him. We wanted to make him a little bit of light relief as well. That's. Yeah. You know, but also kind of that every time for every time a man's grabbed you or touched you inappropriately, right now she's going to throw him up against a wall, and that was I I definitely yeah. enjoyed writing that scene yeah. where <laughs> years of sexual harassment thr- thrust into yeah. the, the wall scene, and, yeah, and, no, and she's really at this got him, hasn't she? Yeah, yeah he's going to can- regret that. You kind of, when that happens, even though you don't know she's, you, you do see the the trigger at the beginning. You kind of, it's a little bit of half, it serves you right. Mm, <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You yeah. didn't leave her alone. You, you, you know, the, <laughs> for every inappropriate touch, this is, you're getting it for all, for all humanity here. Careful, lads, you don't know who you're dealing with. <laughs> yeah, be, care, be careful next time you inappropriately touch somebody. Message to Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> Anything you want to plug? Yeah, well, we've got um, we've got a Facebook page, The Journey. There is another film called The Journey, so check it's the Arabic one. Not yes, the there's an one. Irish one. Yes. Yeah, don't get confused. As I, when I was googling the other day, I was about, like, "This is—it's not about Ian Paisley." We should have—we should have come up with possibly a more original title. But <laughs> there's a website www.humanfilm.com where there's information about our other projects that we've done in the past and the future ones. And we're working on a new project at the moment called Birds of Paradise with another strong female lead who drives around Baghdad in a double-decker red bus, uh, picking up the street kids and and teaching them. And she's kind of taking on Al-Qaeda directly. Um, She's trying to take the kids away from these these groups and teach them. Um, So in terms of where our listeners could watch the film, the best thing to do is just keep an eye on the web website and Facebook page as and when details of where it will be shown emerge that's where they'll find them yeah we're hoping it'll be released within the next year so hopefully there'll there'll be ways to access it even if it's local small screenings and things it's really good Uh, I, I really enjoyed watching it Isabel thanks very much for talking to us thanks for having me Question. I'm not answering that. 
Hello, this is Sarah Millican and you are listening to Sarah Millican's Question Time. We've had some cracking questions this week. Um, the Dork Knight on Twitter asks, do dogs think seals are mermaids? <laughs> I think that's such an excellent question. And I happen to have a dog right here, so I'm going to ask him, do fuck, do fuck, no, I don't want to look at you, Winky. <laughs> do fuck. He does that thing where he, when he's lying down, he opens his back legs whenever I say his name. I don't know why. I'll tickle his tummy, though. There we go. Thank you. So, do you think that seals are mermaids? Oh, he's just sort of asleep. He's not really interested. I love that, because I think that those mermaids are not very glamorous, are they? Or maybe seals are glamorous to dogs. Maybe that's why the dog likes me so much. Because he thinks seals are glamorous therefore when I put a pretty dress on <laughs> oh my god he must think I'm like Joan Collins um that is a very old reference Joan Collins actually no I was gonna say as was but I think she's still pretty glamorous now I saw her in a panto once no I didn't oh we were supposed to see her in a panto but she wasn't very well and she was replaced by a man which I thought was a bit mean anyway I think that's it by the by the answer to your question the dark night is We'll never know, but what a lovely world you live in if you think that that is possible. Thanks, guys. Have a good week. If you'd like me to answer one of your questions, then tweet us at StandardIssueUK using the hashtag SMQT. Thank you. Standard Issue for all women. Hello there. We are joined, and by we, I mean Hannah and I are joined. Hello. That's Hannah. There she is. Joined by Katya and Liz from Lighthearts UK. Now you'll see I have purposely not said surnames, and that's because I can say Liz's, it's fine, but I can't say Katya's. So do you two want to introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Katya Giselle Puero. Oh God, you say it like you've said it before. I know, it's weird that. (laughs) Hi, I'm Liz Axum. On Wednesday, which is today, if you're listening to the podcast, on the day that we um, publish, what do we do with the podcast? Come out. Come out. Then it is National Stress Awareness Day. And these two broads know quite a lot about dealing with stress. Okay. <laughs> they're nodding. They're, they're silent. I mean, nods work brilliantly on a podcast. Thanks. <laughs> We're really used to doing this, clearly, aren't we? We're nodding away. Yeah. Um, well, Lighthearts UK, we set that up a few years ago. I'm a massage therapist. And I just noticed that every time I was giving people massages, nearly everyone that was coming to me were talking about their stress problems, their anxiety, depression, a lot of mental health issues. And I used to chat with Lizzie, who's a um, NHS psychiatric nurse, and I used to chat with her about it. And I suddenly realised that we could actually do something where we could put together mental health advice on my website and it would be free of charge for anyone who wants to come and uh, download meditations. And this is what we we wanted to do is make it free of charge because Lizzie, who works in the National Health Service, will tell you that there is no money in the National Health Service mental health teams at the moment. And um, we just wanted to do something just to try and alleviate a lot of the stress and anxiety that's out there at the moment. No money uh, in the NHS for mental health. I mean, it only affects one in three people. So, yeah. 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 I mean, it's 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 interesting. You see everywhere, all over the media, mental health. You know, it's everywhere at the moment. Mental health, big problem, difficulty. And the, the resources are just not there. I'm seeing people far further down the 
at the line with their mental health problems. So mm-hmm. whereas we used to see people earlier and do the kind of work that I'm doing now with CAT, um, we're not able to see people now till, until much further down the line. So they're much more unwell. I was going to say, I guess, with, like with most illnesses, if it's left to its own devices and not given any help or, or support, then it just gets worse. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But unfortunately, the, the referrals aren't coming through to us till later because the, the criteria for getting into secondary mental health teams, it's a lot higher now. You need to be more unwell to get to us. So, Hang on, we've got a Jen joining us. She's got a question. I would like to know if uh, what you're saying about the resources in the NHS. So where there's, there, there are no resources, there's a lot of talk about it by politicians, and there has been for a couple of years now, and there have been all sorts of pledges about doing this, that and the other. Now, obviously, we all know the NHS is fucked like, in general terms, and the amount of money being spent on it, I believe, is significantly less in real terms mm. because of you know economics in terms of like actual tangible policies has any of that translated into like actually more focus or or anything positive well i mean i've been doing this job 20 years and i haven't seen that i've seen a lot of a lot of talk um a lot of people saying that we should be doing more a lot of you know potential for resources but the actual resources don't follow the words so Mm. we're told by the cqc to do more and we say we would happily do more but we need to resource that and and over the years the resources have got thinner and thinner we used to have day hospitals we used to have assertive outreach teams we used to have oh carer support all sorts of resources and it's not there now that the cqc come in and say why aren't you doing more? Why is you just tell more? us what the CQC, is? the Care Quality Commission? So they're independent. They come in and make sure we're doing the job properly, basically. Like an Ofsted for yeah, for yeah, absolutely. Okay. We're all very much aware of them. I think they're you know they're amazing. It's good that we have them because they keep us on our toes. They make sure that we're we're trying to give good quality care. with the resources we have but then you're caught in that position where you're trying desperately to do that but with limited resources having worked in that particular job for 20 years i'm guessing it must be very frustrating because you have to give a shit to do that job otherwise why would you do it and you take on board a lot of people's anxieties and stresses and problems so when katya approached you I'm guessing you bit her arm off. You were like, yes, we can actually do something. No. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have she, to woo her? I had to woo her. The thing is with Lizzie, she, bless her, she's been my best friend since I was 11. And I knew that if I said, right, we're going to, I've got this idea that we're going to put together this package. We're going to do meditations. We're going to tell our stories about our mental health problems because both of us have suffered in the past as well. Let's be completely honest and let's tell everyone what we went through and the techniques that we've learned and what we've learned in our professional lives as well. And she was like, yeah, well, I could just, I I can help you with a few little bits and I can, yeah, maybe I can write a few little techniques and I've got some stuff in my paperwork I can pull out. And I was like, no, 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 Lizzie, I need you on board. I need you to write things. I need you to be honest. And it was hard at the beginning because Lizzie is someone who's very private and I'm a bit more like, let it all hang out. I don't give a shit what anyone thinks. So it was really interesting. And for both of us, it was a, it was a, a I hate that word journey because it is, but it was a mental health journey for both of us doing this project. 
Has it been cathartic? Oh, God, I, I had a nervous breakdown afterwards. <laughs> I'm not sure that's what I meant by cathartic, to be honest But with it you. was because I had to get it out. Because when you're giving advice to people and you're saying, oh, yeah, well, if you want to, you know, you have to be honest about your feelings. You have to, things are going to be hidden. That's all going to come out when you do this course. You're going to have th- things that you, you're in denial about. And then at the end of the course, once we'd done it all and we put it all out, I suddenly realised there was a lot that I hadn't dealt with. And then I ended up having what I call a wobblex. It's not a nervous breakdown. It's a, I call it a wobblex when you, you just go into a bit of a, a, you know, a funk and you think, oh, God, it's all gone horribly wrong. And I ended up having to see a therapist <laughs> for a little while. Was just it to do get... as I say, not as I do for a while? Yeah, it was okay. a bit. Yeah. But that's the thing is that it, it really does, it, it shines a light on that sometimes because in our job we spend a lot of our time telling people sort of hey why don't you try this and try that and actually sometimes we don't do it ourselves sometimes we go oh god I've got to remind myself to do those things because it's it's important to keep your own and that's the thing when we're in our jobs is that we're looking after other people's mental health and we forget about our own yeah it strikes me it's easier to sit and write a prescription for a drug than it is to tackle the underlying problems. Is that something, is that common in your experience, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, GPs try their hardest, but they've got a very short amount of time yeah. to, to see people. I think identifying you know, mental health issues around presenting somatic complaints. So, you know, my neck's, my neck's painful, I've got joint pain, I'm not sleeping terribly well. You know, we're, we're hopeful that GPs are becoming more... Uh, able to identify that actually maybe that seven minutes could be used to, to sort of say, well, how are you feeling in yourself and what's going on in your life rather than, OK, take some codeine. I hope we're getting there. I, we, we certainly do a fair bit of work closely with the GPs to try and get people to, to ask other questions um, when they're in, in the surgery. But I think we're a long way from where I would like us to be. And I think it's hard because there's still that stigma around mental health. I chatted to the author, Rayel, who wrote My Mad Fat Teenage Diary, and she is incredibly candid about her mental health issues. And we were talking about the fact that mental health doesn't necessarily mean mental illness. It's in the same way that you look after your body. We're just never really taught to look after our brains. And because there's a stigma that if your brain has gone a little bit wonky then there's something really wrong with you. I think people going to see their GPs don't want it to be mental. They want it to be, well, no, I've done something to my neck or my back or my... My elbow, I'm yeah. pretty sure that isn't a thing that comes up with mental health. <laughs> really whammy elbow. And it's almost like they're resisting that. So it must be even harder to spot when you're on the other side of it. I went to doctors a while ago now, not in a very good place mentally, and knowing that I was not in a very good Like, I went there in tears, just like I'm a mess, basically. And my GP was lovely. She was great. But she was just like... I can give you some antidepressants and I can put you on a waiting list for six sessions of CBT. It's like, I don't need CBT. My brother died. I'm really sad about it. Like, my life is not great. I'm sad about it. I need to talk to someone. And she was just like, you're not going to get that on the NHS. I'm really sorry, but the waiting list is so long. You are going to have to go private and that's all you can do. I mean, I was very lucky. I was able to pay for it Mm -hmm. privately, but a fuckload of people won't be because it is not cheap. Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons we did the the course that we did is because before we did the course that we were going to workshop the techniques first 
and I did some free workshops in a council estate. I had about 20 people coming along and I did some really basic techniques and these people had never heard of any of these techniques and I was thinking, my God, if a GP had just been able to just before they did the antidepressant prescription that they could just roll out a few just say right this is it all or give them a link to a website Mm. to say try this technique because this might really help then a lot of these people would have been okay and after I did a I did we did 12 weeks with them and the it was just incredible to see the difference. There was a, a lady that had said, she said, oh, I was just, I felt like I had a ball and chain. I was just dragging it around with me. And she said, now I use these techniques. And I, she said, for the first time in 10 years, she felt okay. And that was amazing because you think, my gosh, it's just really, really simple techniques. But if you don't know where to go, if you don't know where the information is going to come from or you don't you don't have a trusted source and that's um, one of the reasons we thought well if we get it all in one place if we get all these resources in one place all these techniques in one place and people can try and test because some things don't work for some people there's certain techniques where you just go I really can't I can't get on with that but then there'll be something else that you can work with that can really really help going back to what you said about physical pain and and mental pain and how that relates I see that all the time so many people come to me they've got bad necks bad bad shoulders they have lower back pain and they've got pains in their joints and nearly every person that I see who has pain in their body also has mental pain and it, I will always, because I had do full consultations before, I will always find out something. And it is nearly always mental pain that is causing physical pain. Well, you hold yourself differently. You yeah. tense up. Yeah. Just to go back to what Katty's been talking about, the course. So this isn't the first time that Light Hearts has been in standard issue. We chatted to you guys when you first started the course. And it's a 10-week course to promote mental health. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm using the word health in the kind of like keeping your brain healthy. Yeah. So... Can you tell us a little bit about the techniques and... Yeah, Lizzie, Lizzie can... Well, I mean, you, most of it was you, I have to say. Credit <laughs> well, you where guys. credit's you. No, no, but it was. I mean, I, I think we, we talked a lot, didn't we, about how it was going to look, what was something that was going to be practical, something that was going to be easy, something that was signposting, trying to consolidate all the information that I'd got in my head and what I do, all the stuff that you do, and just trying to put that in one place. I don't... We wanted to avoid being too prescriptive for all the reasons that Kat's just said. You know, some things work for some people and other things don't work so well. So it's about trying to find your own path. So it was about devising that. Yeah. But when we started off writing it, I I sort of halfway through, I just went, oh, this is really shit. This is really shit because it sounds like Gwyneth Paltrow. You know, yeah. it, you we know really that. Yes. And I was you weren't telling us bad things about themselves. Yeah. Goo balls or whatever. These are your magic chakra stones that you shove right up your foof. Oh, I didn't. Yeah, I really didn't want to do any chakra stones up your foof kind of thing. So I said, I said to Lizzie, this is sounding too dry I said it's that and like she said it prescriptive it was like if you do this you'll feel really so much better and I Mm. I wanted to say 
there were so many times when I've tried techniques and they haven't worked at all. And, I mean, I have to use them every day. Like, for example, this is a classic one that I had to do last night. Last night, went to bed nice and cosy. I'm there, you know, I, I'm feeling good. Within the space of five minutes, I was crying. And the reason was, was because I'd gone from being cosy to suddenly my brain said to myself, oh, so what happens, though, if tomorrow your husband dies? What happens if tomorrow... Tomorrow this happens and you lose everything. Then what happens when you get old, you'll have no house. What happens if your kids hate you and you get put in a home? What happens when you're in a home, the people in the home hate you and beat you up? Right, that's how my brain works. In five minutes. Yeah, actually, in five that minutes. does sound quite familiar. Yeah. That's how okay. my brain works too. I'm going to ask a psychiatric nurse, are brains pricks? Um, it's, it does feel sometimes like it's conspiring against you constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I think we have to try and stay focused on the fact that you you can you can change. You you don't have to think the way you think. Psychiatry is all about starting to think about how you think. Um, so they're like a muscle that maybe you can retrain. Absolutely. Okay. And I think holding on to that is is kind of pretty fundamental. That's that. That is what will get is you that feeling. Sanity? <laughs> <laughs> there are processes that you learn. There are maladaptive behaviours that you learn. Some of them you learn consciously. Some of them you learn unconsciously. There are things that we do through our life that start in childhood that we maintain through our teens and sustain through our twenties and thirties and reach forties and suddenly go. Do you know what? I'm so sick of this shit. I am so sick of this shit. And if you get there then you think about ways that you can not do that anymore and maybe feel a little bit better in yourself. And I think what we've tried to do with our programme is to say there's lots of different ways that you can do that. This is some of them. Have a, have a look at this, see what you think. Have you heard about this? Have you heard about this technique? Have you seen the way this person has helped themselves? Listen to these two idiots around there wanging on about all the stuff yeah. that they've been through. I think sounding smugly like they know the solution to yeah. everything. But, you know, just it, 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 there are different ways to help. Stress. I mean, it's a big old word for like a word with six letters in it. Six letters. <laughs> I just counted, just counted it is six letters. What does it mean to you if someone came to either of you with stress? Because obviously they come to you for slightly different things, but what does it mean to you? I'm going to start with Liz. In my job, I probably wouldn't get to see someone who was stressed, you know, just stressed. It, it would probably be a little bit more extreme than that. We do... Un- I say unfortunately, I'm going to say unfortunately, the medical model is pretty strong in psychiatry in the mental health teams. We have limited resources for talking therapies. We have some occupational therapies. We have some access to psychology, but it's mainly medication. Uh, Stress, I think people presenting at their GP, I would like to think that that's not the first thing that the GP would reach for, would be an antidepressant medication or an benzodiazepine and anxiolytic medication I suspect it possibly is it's going to be a sign of other stuff that's going on though right yeah I mean most of the people that I see that I I treat when they're stressed there's always something going on but most of it is I just see people with really really busy lives and a lot of the time their lives could be simplified a little bit more and you see that people are working their way 
to an early grave sometimes because you can see it building up, building up, building up and they take responsibility on responsibility and sometimes you just think, oh my gosh, I wish I could help that person more. But it it all does come down to them and it all does come down and it, it, we have to struggle with it every day is making time for yourself. That is the bottom line. We all have responsibilities. We all are called upon to do things that we don't really want to do we all have jobs we all have families we all have responsibilities in that way but the bottom line always is that you put yourself first so whatever happens there'll be certain things like for instance my mental health there's a few little things that I have to do and if I don't I go completely bonkers so I have to have a 30 minute walk every day I have to do at least 15 minutes of stretching, just a little bit of yoga that helps me with my, you know, pains in my joints and things, which takes the stress off my body, but it also calms my mind. And I also have to do a little bit of meditation as well. So I know that if I don't do those things, and those things can, they they take less than an hour to do every day. So sometimes I, I set my alarm a bit earlier and sometimes I turn the TV off earlier in order to do them. And it's hard sometimes because all I want to do is veg out and watch Netflix. That's seriously, that's all I want to do. But I just say to myself, if I don't do these little things, and they're just little things really, they keep me on an even keel. And that I have to hold dear to myself. And I I always just try and stress, and we always stress that to ourselves because we know what we have to do to keep our mental health and our stress under control. And it's really hard for most people to do it. But that's what we would say every time. Just hold yourself as dear to yourself as you do other people. You are the number one person because without you, no one else gets you. You don't get to care for anyone else because if you're not looking after yourself, no one else gets cared for. So you put yourself first. So if you were to offer tips to people to look after themselves, what would they be? I mean, I would say look after yourself, Uh think of yourself, treat yourself how you treat others. Most people are really kind to other people. I like to think it's a good place, this world. It's a lot less horrible than sometimes we're made to believe. So most people are good and you're good to other people. You're good to your family. You're good to your friends. Be good to you. Treat you like you treat everyone else. Mm -hmm. That's a good way to start. And within that, you know, just take care of yourself, take care of... Maybe, you know, think about what you're putting into your body and what you're eating. That does make a huge difference. What you're drinking, if you're smoking, those sorts of things. You know, I'm not not saying don't do those things. I'm just thinking, just be mindful of what that does. That does change you and how you think and how you feel. And obviously, physically, if you feel under the weather, you don't feel so good because you're maybe not looking after yourself, that's going to affect your mental health. So think about that. Um, what other things are we going to... Try any technique that you possibly can. Just look at all the things out there. Try it all. Don't judge yourself if you can or you can't do it. But try and find your, your thing. Like for me, it's it's the little walk, the yoga and the meditation. For me, those are the three things that keep me sane. And when I don't do those things, I start slipping off the path. And I can see it. Also, for me, I have to be really careful of sugar levels. When I have too much sugar, I just go off the wall. 
and it really is not a good place to be. So I always have to look at it like that as well and just think, okay, it's about not judging yourself. You have to just be sweet to yourself all the time and never think about, you know, you're not saying, oh, you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to do the other. Because like, if you have to feel like you're doing it every day, you're going to fail. Because I'm never going to do yoga every day. I'm never going to meditate every day. But if I can do it sometime in the week, I will be okay. And that's what you, you have to kind of edge for, is not to be the perfect, shiny person that you want to be. Just go, okay, I'm doing okay. I'll do what I can. But like we said, is just trying to find that piece of time for yourself. Carve out that piece of time for yourself. And cut yourself some slack. Absolutely. Absolutely. Every single time, just stop judging yourself. Just stop judging. And stop judging yourself. Stop judging everyone else. Just chill. (laughs) (laughs) How do people get in touch with you? Our website is www.lighthearts-uk.com. And there, there's the mental wellbeing site there. And there's all the resources that you know, you've got meditations on there. There's links to websites that will be really useful. There's all the mental health helplines on there that can help you for any situation that you've got. If you're going through abuse, alcoholism, drug addiction, so you can get direct to the person. Because for us, it's about signposting the resources that are out there. <laughs> Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time in the week where we send the patriarchy for a big boy's nap in the sin bin as we talk women's sport. First and foremost, a massive round of applause for the winners of last week's Sunday Time Sports Women of the Year Awards. Short track speed skater Elise Christie won the main prize after winning the 1,000 and 1,500 metre as well as the overall title at the World Short Track Skating Championships in Rotterdam this year. She's the first British woman to win a world title in the sport. In second place was Joe Conter and in third, Taekwondo ace Bianca Walkton. The England cricket team picked up Team of the Year for their World Cup victory this summer while Ellie Downing took Young Sportswoman of the Year for her European all-round gymnastics Championship in April. Wheelchair racer Hannah Cockcroft won the award for Disability Sportswoman of the Year, having won three gold medals at the London IPC World Athletic Championships in July. Well done to all of them. So, okay, this next bit is actually about men's sport, but that's because it's genuinely exciting. And of course, I'm talking about England's victory in the under 17s Football World Cup at the weekend. The Young Lions beat Spain. Yes, guys, Spain. 5-2 after initially going 2-0 down. That doesn't sound like the England football team we love to be disappointed by, does it? Does that mean we might win a World Cup again one day? Well, I imagine we'll grossly intrude their private lives and publicly vilify them plenty before 2022, mentally wearing them down, ultimately killing any joy they have for the international game. But I will leave you with this thought on the matter, that actually we as consumers have the power to dictate the kind of media we want to consume. So shall we use it wisely, yeah? All right, lovely. Moving swiftly on and in less happy news and proof, if you needed it, that sexism is alive and well in sports world, it was reported last week that Aussie rules footballer Nathan Broad, who plays for the Richmond Tigers, had apologised after sharing a picture of a topless woman wearing a medal he'd won without her consent. 
Broad, who later said he took full responsibility for his very bad drunken decision, said, I let down a young woman who I cared about, who I liked and respected. The mind literally boggles as to how Broad treats women who he doesn't respect, eh? The club's president, Peggy O'Neill, described Broad's behaviour as completely unacceptable and he received, wait for it guys, a three-game suspension to be served next season. Three games, yeah? You know, in, in normal football, soccer, if you're American, we'll call it that for the sake of any confusion. That's what you get for a red card, right? So, broad suspension is comparable to a ban you would serve in the Premier League for getting caught, I don't know, diving, right? So that showed him, didn't it? And speaking of a total disregard for the well-being of women, we need to talk about Martin and Greg and Dan and the head of HR at the Football Association as well, to be fair. The big story over the last couple of weeks is, of course, the appearance by FA's Martin Glenn and Greg Clark at the Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee hearing over the sacking of England women's former manager Mark Sampson amid allegations of racism. Sampson was found clear of any wrongdoing uh, by two, I think, independent inquiries or reviews or whatever we want to call it, after it was alleged by England and Chelsea ladies player Enia Luko that he had used racially discriminatory language against her. Now, following the initial ruling, Sampson was subsequently found to have made ill-judged attempts at humour, which independent barrister Catherine Newton, who was investigating, said were discriminatory on the grounds of race. In fact, one of the comments he made was a joke about Aluko's Nigerian family risking bringing Ebola to an England match. No, really, that that's what he said. Um, that's, that's lovely, isn't it? So after complaining about the issue, Aluko was offered a payment of 80 grand by the FA to write a statement saying the FA were not institutionally racist, which doesn't sound dodgy at all, does it? In fact, they only ever paid her half until last week as they deemed a tweet by Aluko in August to have been in breach of the agreement. And that tweet said, at least we now know the FA stance on derogatory racial remarks by an England manager. Ignore, deny, endorse in that order. Since the initial inquiry, but before before these revelations last week, the FA sacked Samson, which we've already talked about on this podcast. But they parted company on possibly even more worrying terms, which were because he had been found guilty of inappropriate behaviour while managing the Bristol City women's team as a result of an investigation into safeguarding concerns. So it's really important to be clear that Samson was not found to have done anything illegal. He was found not to pose a risk to the women that he was working with. But the investigation took place while Samson was the England manager. People at the FA will have been aware of it and Sampson wasn't even suspended pending the outcome of the investigation. So to be clear, again, while being investigated in relation to safeguarding concerns, Sampson was allowed to continue in his role as the England women's football manager. Can you hear that? That is the sound of me screaming into the abyss. Now... I assume this is because no one was really watching at that time. Women's football was still relatively minor uh, in terms of, you know, the popularity or the, the number of people taking an interest in it. So you can imagine possibly it wasn't really worth the fuss, which is worrying on the basis that the powers that be apparently were willing to risk their players' safety and well-being and also worrying that they didn't think women's football was newsworthy enough for anyone to give a rat's ass about this inquiry. 
There have been, quite rightly, calls for Glenn and Clark to lose their jobs over this debacle. Something that appears not to be at all likely to happen. And this is me being angry again for the second time this week. Maybe the third time, possibly. How can this be possible? How can it be the case that in 2017 and now, at this particular time, with racism and sexism so firmly on the news agenda, with the avalanche of revelations about sexual assault, harassment, abuse, endured routinely by women in all sectors, how can it be possible... How can it be the case that the total absence of concern over both these issues, racism and sexism, sees these guys keeping their job? We're saying this is cool. We're saying we're okay with this. We're okay with the FA whitewashing allegations of racism. Then dropping Aluko from the team, because that's also important. Aluko's career suffered for speaking out. She didn't play at the Euros in the summer. I would venture that it was odd that she was not on the squad. Anyway, her career suffered as a result of speaking out. And apparently we're okay with that. We're okay with the FA not giving a shit about women's football or indeed the welfare of its female players. To be frank, it's dodgy as fuck. And as far as I'm concerned, Set Blatter can keep the bench warm for these guys. Some strong views there from me on the matter, and I'm sure lots of other people will have strong views as well, and I would encourage you to tweet me with those views. I am on at InspireGen on the Twitter, and you can tweet Standard Issue as well, at Standard Issue UK. Any thoughts you might have on any of this, we will be back, or rather I will be back next week with more women's sport. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disney. Dunleavy, what Disney did you do this week? This week I watched 1996's... That's hard to say. This week I watched 1996's The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Or Notre Dame. Or Notre Dame if you're American. Or Hunchback. The Hunchback of Notre Dame. (laughs) Who says the Hunchback? Just me. I'm trying to make it a a thing. I'm going sure. to try and make it happen. Okay. I used to know a bloke we'll just called the Hunchback. <laughs> and he was from the Czech Republic and his surname was Herbeck and that apparently means Hunchback in oh. Czech. Oh. He didn't have a Hunchback. On the German exchange as like a 13 year old or whatever my mate had to stay with someone <laughs> whose name was Herbert Mooseman. Herbert Mooseman? Herbert Mooseman. That's the worst name in the world, isn't it? Yeah. It's pretty good. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, anyway, um, I thought I might have seen this before, but almost immediately I realised when I was watching it that I hadn't, for reasons that will become clear. Um, it was made after Aladdin, which, as we all know now, means it's got famous people in it. Mm-hmm. Tom Hulse is the voice of Quasimodo. Demi I Moore. I don't know who Tom Hulse is. He is probably most famous for being Mozart in Amadeus. Oh, I do. Um, it's got Demi Moore. She yep. is Esmeralda. Mm-hmm. Um, Kevin Klein is the captain, mm. who is the romantic lead. Phoebus. Um, mm. The bad guy, Frollo, um, he's played by Tony Jay, which is a name you probably won't recognise, but Jay was the voice of Shere Khan, not in the original Jungle Book, but in the straight-to-video sequels. So you've got to think he used the same voice in those. And he appears to be using the same voice here, 
which is a bit distracting, a bit like, you know, when Baloo was in Robin Hood. Mm. It's, it is, it's, it's the baddie in this is basically Shere Khan, which is strange. And also, I mean, Frollo doesn't look like a tiger. He looks like Christopher Lee. Um, yeah, he's got a very triangular face. It's incredibly um, Christopher Lee has a triangular face. But, um, it's quite long, though. Yeah. And Anyway, and three days ago, we were all in a pub, and I asked if either of you had watched this, and you hadn't. And I'm normally unbothered as to whether you watch these or not, but this film is so fucking odd that I wanted a second opinion. Um, it sounds like Mickey has found the time to watch it since then, but you haven't had it yet. I haven't, no. I've not had time, but... Um... But we did do a bit of... We'll talk about this later, maybe, yeah. the Google image search. Yeah, well, see, Maddie, our technical genius, reported that she'd watched it almost obsessively as a child and yet couldn't remember a single thing about it. Apart from it was a musical. She yeah, which that. is surprising because this film is just, just, like, seriously, wow. It's based on Victor Hugo's novel of the same name in exactly the same way that Pocahontas is based on real-life events. Um <laughs> It's set in 15th century Catholic France and absolutely nothing about this film is French. Nothing, except a shop that says Boulangère on the front. Mm. And I'm pretty sure that's actually supposed to say Boulangerie. Yes, I would have thought so. Yeah. Uh, But basically there's no one French in France. In fact, Paris in this looks like Paris looks in Marine Le Pen's head. It's just full of foreigners. Um, (laughs) What it is, on the other hand is really fucking Catholic. And by that, I mean it's basically like one long repressed wank. It is. I mean, it's it's just... There's so much repressed stuff just backing up and coming out yeah. of people via song, I think. Yeah. I mean, even if you're familiar with Hugo's book, you're going to need this plot explaining to you because, like I say, it bears no resemblance whatsoever. There's this incredibly melodramatic opening scene with this... Da, 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 music and Notre Dame rising literally above the clouds. So just to, sorry, to, to chip in, obviously when a Disney movie starts, you usually get the da, 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 yeah. da. It's just a black screen for ages. Then yeah. this dark music kicks in and it comes over the Disney castle and you can hear children bursting into tears. Yeah. Now I've got to say here, because, you know, I've been quick enough to say when, you know, when we were talking about Prince Philip's frozen face... In Sleeping Beauty. So credit where credit's due, this film is actually really well animated. And I think you see it right from the start. Everything takes place really high up above the city. And they use the cathedral really well. And they use like the overshots of the views really well. And that does start in the opening scene. It is really well animated. It's beautiful. I will say that. Mm. But back to that grand opening. Frollo, who's the guy in charge of Paris, is chasing down some gypsies who he thinks are trying to smuggle something out of the city. And he's on his splendidly bemained horse. And he chases down one woman to the steps of Notre Dame, grabs the bundle, the woman falls over and dies. And he sees that the package isn't a stolen treasure, but a fugly baby. Oh. So he goes to drown it in a well. Yeah, classic Disney. But the archdeacon runs out of the cathedral and says, no, you have to raise him as your own because the church knows what you've done. Which the church num- knows a lot of things, though, doesn't it? Exactly. To be well, fair. a number of writers have commented that this scene is Disney's stance on abortion laid bare. And I actually don't disagree. Frodo does a bit of victim blaming for the death before he says that ultimately that he will raise the kid as his own, provided he can leave it in the bell tower, which barely fits the remit of raising the child no. as his own. But 
there you have it. There's a he disconnect there. Isn't yeah, he doesn't there? say, oh, well, in that case, it, this kid can join my 12 other children in yeah. the bell tower because that's where I raise all my yeah. children. Does he raise any other children there? No, he's uh, a virgin. I think we're supposed to believe. Uh, yeah, he does seem to be a virgin. Anyway, we'll fast forward 20 years. Quasimodo, part formed, is living way up high above Paris mm-hmm. and talking to a trio of gargoyles and wanting to go outside. One of the gargoyles is George Costanza. It, it is. Together, they hatch a plan for the hunchback to go to the Festival of Fools, where everyone wears face masks because mm-hmm. they're thinking then he will probably... He's so fit. busted, he'll fit right in. He'll fit in, exactly. As if, like, you know, some if, if some consumptive bastard mill owner from the 1900 mastered time travel and made it to 2017, he might best hide himself at the Tory party conference, <laughs> maybe. I think he was in charge of signage. So the plot from here on in is both complicated and pretty simple and kind of stupid. It mostly consists of people being locked up and escaping and then being locked up again and escaping again. And then the crowd being on someone's side and then not being on their side and then being on their side again. Which, were this a smart piece of political satire, would be spot on. But here it's just a really overused plot device. Long and short of it is... Quasimodo runs into the dancer Esmeralda, a young gypsy girl with a heart of gold. Sure. Natch. And massive tits. Tits you could eat your dinner off. Well, there you go. So let's talk about Esmeralda. She's she's very spiky. She's very brave. She's unafraid of authority. She's In many ways, she's a sort of prototype Katniss Everdeen. Yeah, she's got her own agency. Absolutely. She does what she wants to do. All of which is to be applauded. On the other hand... She looks like everyone in the animation studio had a different idea about what she should look like. And to stop an argument, they took one characteristic from each. She has dark hair and skin, very dark hair and skin. She's supposed to be uh, a Romany gypsy. But she has bright green eyes, which in a way is a, a victory for green-eyed people who generally get a bad rap from Disney. Oh, that is generally true, yeah. a bad character if you've got green eyes. But on the other hand, it seems sort of unlikely that she would have that certainly that colour green eyes with that complexion and her hair is so big that I'm quite often surprised that her neck can bear the weight of it to be (laughs) honest it's enormous it's the kind of hair that given that Esmeralda is some sort of animated wet dream you could quite easily put a cock in I think that's what they were thinking yeah yeah she's she's definitely she's objectified more than I think any other woman I've encountered in a Disney film it's, so far. Well, in the film? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And I realise, the, the weird thing is, this is actually in keeping with Hugo's book. Mm. But it seems strange to me that the only element of the novel that they decided to keep was the bit where basically everyone shoves their hands down their pants every time she enters a room. Really? Particularly, much. particularly given that this is a film for children. I mean, the, 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 the biggest example of this... Peak lusting, let's call it, comes in a scene where Frollo stands in front of a fire <laughs> and sees Esmeralda dancing in it and sings about how she can either be his or she can burn to death. Yeah, they're the options. Sure. Mm. Sensible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, it's all very much, it's witchcraft and she's beguiled him and that means that she is a bad person because he has these feelings. Sure, it's her fault she's so hot. Yeah, that yeah. she makes him want to put his cock in her hair. I mean, yeah. everybody, everybody <laughs> wants to put their cock in her hair. Don't, like seriously, everyone in this entire film. But yeah, even the gargoyles. Is, he is the most 
I don't know. Into it. Into it, yeah. Definitely. Cock hair or die. And that's what I mean about it feeling really Catholic. It just feels unbelievably repressed. And I mean, I, I want to say now, because I quite, I've been in trouble with the Catholics before, because <laughs> in fact, somebody once wrote me a letter telling me to remember what happened to Salman Rushdie. And I thought, what? I'm going to be a millionaire. But, um, He's not a Catholic. No, but that, I think they were, they were they suggesting wanted to put that a fatwa the Catholics on you. a fatwa on yeah. me. Yeah. Mm. Catholic fatwa. I was raised Catholic, went to Catholic school for like mm-hmm. 15 years. So if you're listening and you think that I don't understand Catholicism, I do understand it. I just don't believe in any of it. Mm. Um, Every time you say that, a Catholic dies. I know. But this film does Jesus feel really, really, really Catholic. Can I just say um, that when we were in the pub the other night, going back to this thing about the Google image search, I looked for pictures of Esmeralda and said quite quickly, I don't think I want these search results on my phone because... An awful lot of strange people have had an awful lot of fun with um, their interpretations of Esmeralda, if anyone's um, wants to wank to pictures of a cartoon. Kind I'd, of I'd, yeah. Disney porn. Yeah, I'd definitely recommend it. Although saying that, this film is... Not the wanking on... to Disney porn. I don't do that, just to be clear. Just if, it, if, that's, your, if that's your thing. Sure, Jen. Jen yeah. just remembered her mum listens. I don't think Disney makes porn. No, but I think this is as close. Yeah, to this is as close to porn as Disney porn. Also, her outfit—that ain't fifteenth century, mate. There's nothing fifteenth century about that. There's nothing. There's nothing particularly fifteenth century about this whole thing. Okay, and like in the same way that there's literally nothing French about it. Mm. I mean, no one goes on strike in it. There's a croissant. <laughs> no one's walking around naked from the waist down. Has there is a cartoon got... croissant. Is there? Yeah. Are there any onions around anyone's neck? No, no one's doing Breton. that. I mean, it's the very opposite of 101 Dalmatians. Nobody nobody calls whatever the French equivalent of Scotland Yard is once. Le Gard. Le Gard. Does anyone go to the Gard de Nord? Actually, though, the, the most French thing about it is the guards have got the same moustaches that the guards have, the French soldiers have in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Does yeah, it? when they're up at the castle. Does it have the uh, historical inaccuracy of the Eiffel Tower in it? No. no. Oh, that's good. I no. was really expecting that not to be the case. So, Did you like it, Dunleavy? Um, not really. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's a real Disney by numbers film. Long drop death and all. It's really dark, which is something I usually applaud heartily. But it's really striking how much of this darkness is centred around lust. And... If I wanted to see men throw an abuse at a woman because they were unable to articulate how much they actually wanted to fuck her, I'd just take a look at Lily Allen's Twitter mentions, I think. (laughs) Um, I've got to say again, the animation is great. The music isn't. In fact, it's weird because it manages to be both completely over the top and utterly unmemorable at the same time. But what I remember, like, there was a weird thing and I'm like, is that, is that? And it's going back to the Catholic thing. There's loads of use of the Kyrie Eleison song because I was brought up a Catholic as well. Well, I read somewhere, but I can't verify it. As in, I've seen it as a fact. I believe it was on the Wikipedia page, but I haven't found it anywhere else that backs it up as a fact, which is that this film uses the word God and hell more than any other film ever. Probably just with Frollo. Yeah, possibly. It's a bit weird for kids, um, isn't it? It is incredibly dark. And I wondered, there's the bit where Quasimodo talks to his three gargoyle friends. And whenever anyone else is in the room, apart from once when the goat, um, Esmeralda's got a pet goat with an earring in, um, the gargoyles... Because he's are, a gypsy and all gypsies have... They do, it's yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah. It is true, true, yeah. Yeah, and goats. Mm. And apart from that, though, whenever there's anyone else present, the gargoyles turn to stone. And it's 
has Quasimodo been locked up for so long on his own that he's gone mad? Yeah, I did consider that. I mean, there are actually, to be fair to it, there are some bits that are actually quite funny. Mostly stuff that's either said by Kevin Klein or by Jason Alexander. Yeah. plays one of the the gargoyle buddies or, who knows, figment of his imagination. He's he's the the fat naughty one, right? Yeah. Yeah. And the message seems pretty inoffensive sort of at first glance in that you shouldn't judge someone for how they look is the basic message. Unless, of course, if they look really nice, in which case, get unzipping those trousers, get your hand down your pants. That's what I do. Yeah, <laughs> to Disney films. Yeah. We've established that you've gone back on it, Jen. Oh, dear. But it's so fucking weird. It is really weird. I liked bits of it. It was entertaining. But then I was like, but this is really weird and wrong. And the music was very Phantom of the Opera and that kind of like, no one can love me because I'm so ugly. Yeah. And it's just really like, if any kids did look different, sure, he gets to be friends with someone, but they still like, he's never going to find And does he not go out with her at the end? No. no. She goes gets, out with yeah, Kevin Klein. Oh, quite early on they get together. I thought the whole point was that he was that he got together with her and then they're all like, oh, look, but you can be ugly and beautiful and no. still bump ugly. They're friends and he learns that friendship is more beautiful. Because there is a kind of tragic scene where all his friends, the gargoyles, mm. sing a song saying, oh, but she's going to love you. Why couldn't she love you? You're brilliant. Because they're obviously gargoyles, so who the fuck knows? Like, A, no one loves a gargoyle. And B, they're not the best people to judge who's attractive and who's not attractive. They are really set him up for a fall. And it's odd because it's done in this really cheery song, which actually is quite good. That song's okay. Yeah. I went to see, uh, as part of my drama A-level, that's right, guys, I've got a drama A-level, I went to see The Phantom of the Opera, right, in uh, London's West End. Mm -hmm. And I shat my pants. And I was 18 years old, guys. And I shat my pants. Yeah, because he'd just fucking turn up all over the shop, wouldn't he? It'd just all go dark and then it'd be like, thunder and shit. And then he'd just be like, fucking there, wouldn't he? It was awful. The woman in black's like that. Oh, no, but that's genuinely terrifying, whereas Phantom of the Opera's not scary. I was so scared. I've seen it like six times. So scared when I saw the woman in black. I had to ring a friend of mine that I'd gone to the theatre with. We'd like, I'd park my car in one place and he parked his bike somewhere else. And neither of those are euphemisms, by the way. <laughs> and I had to walk down a dark alley. This doesn't sound any less euphemistic. And I got halfway down it and I couldn't, I had to ring him and say, can you come back and walk down the dark alley until I get to my car? Because I was genuinely terrified. And, you know, I'm not really scared of anything at all. My friend Kevin used to work at the Scarborough Theatre where the Women in Black is. Well, that's where they first did it as a theatre performance. And he said you'd just be stood in the kitchen and the poor woman who played the Woman in Black had just come in for a cup of tea and everyone would be like, oh, fucking hell, where did you come from? He's like, you'd turn around and she'd be behind you. And he went, she had no friends. We were all just terrified of her. Just sat eating her sandwiches on her own in costume. Don't do it in costume. Well, sometimes they have to, like... In costume. Well, don't eat then. <laughs> what score are we giving it, Hannah? Um, I'm genuinely torn about this because if if you're not bothered by the idea of sex and hell being quite so closely linked, you might well like it. Um, and also, you probably didn't go to Catholic school. But for me, mm, I'm going to give it two. Mm. Two what? Two priests with erections out of five. <laughs> <laughs> Right then, that's your lot for this week, you smashers. Thanks very much for downloading us. I'm recording this in my bedroom on Halloween and it does mean that 
there have been a series of pricks I say pricks, I mean kids in various costumes banging on my door all night and also a collection of bellends somewhere decided they're going to get giddy about fireworks five nights early so if you hear any banging, that's what it is what you heard of us chatting to Katya and Liz from Lightheart UK was actually a snippet of a much longer interview which we will be releasing as a chops on Sunday. It was really fascinating. There's some great tips in there if you suffer from anxiety or stress or just want like a few ideas of how to make life a little bit easier for yourself. So tune in for that on Sunday. And of course there's also a back catalogue of chops including Jen chatting to Judy Murray and Claire Baldin, Hannah chatting to Catelyn Brodnick and Jem Turner and I've had a natter with Ray Earl and Sarah Milliken and my mate Rebecca Solomon. So yeah, give them a listen. Also if you fancy coming and seeing us live, I mean you might be listening to this before Sunday and if so we've got a gig on Sunday and it's an absolute doozy Jess Phillips MP Catherine Ryan Alex Jones and our Sarah what an absolute cracking lineup! you'll have noticed on Twitter and Facebook that we are holding a special gig on November the 19th which is International Men's Day uh, we are letting men do some talking I know we were surprised too but obviously gender inequality is shit for everyone we're holding the gig to raise awareness of various issues facing men that are caused by inequality we'll be shaking some buckets to raise money for excellent men's charity CALM which stands for campaign against living miserably so if you don't have tickets get some tickets it's going to be wicked the lineup is awesome we've got ellis james lovely stuff richard osman very tall and lovely we've got tom allen hilarious and also sanjeev baskar brilliant man so it is a corking lineup sarah and hannah are hosting that one it's going to be great all details of all our gigs can be found on sarah's website which is www.sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue and that's a page dedicated to us lesser next week we are chatting to maureen younger and jen brister about the series outlander and we're also taking in a year of president donald trump so maybe get some biscuits some tissues maybe some bricks to throw at tellies you know there's going to be rage involved don't forget if you fancy doing some reading we've still got an archive of absolutely corking features over on standardissuemagazine.com and we'd bloody love to hear from you and you can get in touch with us using the email address mailbag at standardissuemagazine.com you can also follow us on twitter at standardissueuk or find us on facebook and instagram our music was composed and recorded by barry hilton all rights reserved and yeah we'll talk to you again next week in the meantime stay frosty Standard issue for all women.